Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Godfrey, and this is Gilbert Godfrey's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is a producer, screenwriter, accomplished director of popular feature films and acclaimed TV shows. He's helmed the episodes of Veronica Mars, Dexter, The West Wing, True Blood, Big Love, Nurse Jackie, Homicide, Life on the Street, The Larry Sanders Show, Blunt Talk, and American Horror Story, just to name a few. A little over three decades ago, he directed his very first feature, the much-admired black comedy Heathers. And he would go on to direct the films Airheads, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, Meet the Applegates, 40 Days and 40 Nights, My Giant, Because I Said So, and the infamous 1991 action comedy Hudson Hawk. More about that later. He's also the executive producer of a favorite film of Frank and I, uh, Tim Burton's Ed Wood, or as we like to call it, Scott Alexander and Larry Kazuski's Ed Wood. Oh, Larry's going to kill you for mispronouncing his name. Karazuski. Karaz... I could never pronounce... Fuck him. (laughs) 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 I... Sorry, Larry. Especially since Larry and Scott wrote Problem Child 1 and 2, so I should learn their names. I, in a career that started way back when he was answering phones for Francis Ford Coppola, he's gone on to direct everyone, from Diane Keaton to James Coburn to Martin Sheen to Jessica Lange, to Bruce Willis and at least a dozen of our podcast guests, including Danny Aiello, Ed Bagley Jr., Dick Cabot, Pat Noswell, Bruce Stern, Michael Keaton, Jeffrey Tambor, and the late, great Paul Reiner. Please welcome to the show a fellow movie obsessive and an artist of many talents, and a man who, like yours truly, can't resist a bad pun. Oh. Michael Lehman. 
Michael, how are you? Good. How are you guys? Let, I want to start by apologizing to Larry Karaszewski and also to and also Michael McKean, who Gilbert called Michael Keaton. Right. I was I was trying to remember when I worked with Michael Keaton, but I couldn't. I came up uh, with, with uh, nothing. Couldn't remember that one, huh? You directed Batman, didn't you? Yes, of course, yeah. many of them. Yeah. <laughs> what What's this about bad puns? I I reached out to Larry and Scott, who've done this show twice. And I said, your buddy Layman is on, and uh, and Larry said he cannot resist a, a good or a bad pun. And, you know, th- that makes you a man after Gilbert's heart. Good. But I'm going to try as hard as I can during our conversation to not make any puns whatsoever, just to <laughs> prove Larry wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Gilbert, your Twitter feed is all puns. Uh, yeah. 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 I just... Um, uh, why did the alphabet take laxative? So they could have a vowel movement. Okay, see? Yes. So, Good. Th- thank you. Highbrow. Now, now, I, I, if I'm not out of line, uh, what did mankind do as a species that uh, Hudson Hawk <laughs> was inflicted on? <laughs> yes, right I wake up it. every morning and I say, what did I do? Why me? How could this happen? What did I do wrong? I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy. I've tried to be really, really gentle and kind and giving and, you know, no, I've been completely screwed. Somehow or another that landed in my lap and I've had to live with it ever since. It's a burden like nobody else carries in the movie business. Now, how did that come about? Well, uh, you know, it came about because Joel Silver, who produced Hudson Hawk, and whom you know well, I'm of I course. Oh, Fort Fairlane. Yeah, uh, Joel oh, yeah. saw Heather's my first film, and he said, I, "I, I love this film. I gotta get this guy. I gotta get these guys <laughs> who did it." And he he contacted Dan Daniel Waters, who wrote Heather's, who also wrote Ford Fairlane. You may you may know that. There you I go, um, and. Uh, he and he started to work with Dan, and somewhere along the way there, he called me, and he said, "I love your movie. I want to do something with you." And uh, he, I believe, he suggested, you know, I've got this project Hudson Hawk with Bruce Willis, and it's an action adventure film. And he sent me the script, which was a very good script by Steve D'Souza, but pretty much, you know, what you would expect from Joel and Bruce at that time. And I read it, and I said, "I'll do this if I can turn it on its head." And make the you know the the weird version of this that's unexpected and has a different kind of humor. And I'd like Dan Waters to write it and and see what we can do. And Joel was like, Ah, that's great. That's so good. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> you know, Bruce loves you guys. It's going to be terrific. And <laughs> and he did support that very much. And so did Bruce. And we we concocted that kind of crazy movie that that was made. It was a little tough to get it uh, done the way I wanted, but. Um, you know, that's a whole other story. But that's how it happened. I, I basically, and people said to me, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? Why are you working with these guys? You've just made a, a movie that everybody's watching and talking about. You could do anything. I said, it's so far removed from what I think I normally would do that I, you know, I want to try it. I want to see what I can do in the genre. It's a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, this was a movie... To to make Bruce Willis happy. Well, it was a in so Bruce uh, he developed an original script based on a character that he conceived, 
And I think the guys, Reno and Osborne, who are writers on, um, on uh, you know, Bruce's show, the, the one oh, with Moonlighting. The, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and they wrote a few drafts. I never read them. They, they, it was all about Hudson Hawk, the, the cat burglar, and it was a pet project of his. It was something he wanted to do. It was a character that he was really interested in. And um, so, you know, somehow or another, it, it made its way to Steve D'Souza and it made its way to Joel because Joel was doing Die Hard with Bruce. And, uh, you, you know, you could say it was a vanity project, but that would be unfair to vanity project. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, speaking of Dan Waters, who Daniel Waters, who wrote Fort Fairlane Gilbert and and who wrote this movie uh, and Heather's. You know who else he worked with? Michael Keaton. Oh, she <laughs> did. See, it all comes together. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He, and he, he never wrote a Michael Batman McKeon. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you know, we were talking on the phone, Michael, and you you told me something like the 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 the, the concept of the movie kept changing. That it was it was one thing one week, and that do I have do I have this, a sense of this for Hudson Hawk? Yeah. Well, it was a heist movie. It was then it was a then it was an action movie. Then it was a, a it was a, a heist a movie comedy. about a character who who did robberies and didn't carry a gun and never shot anyone. Mm -hmm. And and that was that was always consistent. The nature of the character, the level of the silliness of the humor, the references, the, the point of view that changed a lot because Dan and I didn't want to make we didn't want to make a diehard style right down the middle by the numbers, action movie. And I think Die Hard's movies, I think the Die Hard movies are fantastic. It's mm -hmm. not that I don't like those movies. We all like those movies. It's just we didn't want to do that. So what we did was we went down a road of, um, you know, kind of oddball, unexpected uh, points of view, and that changed. But it's, yeah, you know, I'd say actually what happened, what, what happened to that film, well, many things happened to that film, but <laughs> one, one of the things that happened in that film was that Bruce was very invested in it, and he had a lot of ideas. And, the, you know, God bless him, it was his project. He had every right. He was a producer on it. He was the star. He had every right to have ideas. That was all understood. But sometimes his ideas were different than Dan's ideas and different than my ideas and different than Joel's ideas and different than the studio's ideas. And there was always difficult to figure out how to make everyone happy enough to stay on the same page. And I don't, I, honestly, I don't believe everybody ever did stay on the same page. It has some great moments. Yeah. Oh, I mean the, the high sequences with the, so with Danny, uh, who was, who's done this show. We'll ask you about Danny. Yeah. With, with Danny and Bruce breaking into song are a lot of fun. I, I, I mean, there's, a, I, you know, uh, uh, there, there are some, uh, uh, terrific performance. The British actor who's playing the villain, his name just went. Yeah. Richard, Richard Grant. Richard, Richard Grant, Grant is hilarious. Yeah. yeah you know, Having I, fun. I won't say that it's just flat out a bad film. Too many people have said that for me. Uh, <laughs> Including Gilbert. Just yeah. now. But uh, I will say that in in a certain sense, we, we set out to make that that ridiculous film, and unfortunately we succeeded. <laughs> you know, it it just it, we didn't we didn't want to do it the way everybody expected, and the choices we made. Uh, I do think there's tons of good stuff in it, but you know, clearly, if it held together and was a perfect masterpiece, then we wouldn't be talking about it now this way. <laughs> it's a little bit of it's a little bit of everything. I mean, it turns into a live action cartoon. 
Yes. At, at certain points, I mean, he's he moves his body in a way that's physically impossible when he's fighting James Coburn. Yes. Uh, in the in the, in the climax, uh, it it it's it's got everything in it. It's it's a kitchen sink movie. Is it fair? Right. Is it, it fair to say that? It's got everything in it and more and less. <laughs> <laughs> now well, tell, tell us tell, about James Coburn. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that you know, by the way. That was a, you know, a thrill of the lifetime for me because uh, I love the Flint movies yeah. and the President's Analyst. And that was that stuff came out when I was a kid. I loved those movies. So, uh, you know, when we had this character that Dan, Dan Waters conceived that character and, you know, George Kaplan, I with guess. With a Hitchcock reference. Yeah, with a Hitchcock reference. Right. And um, uh, I don't remember how we came up with it, but I, I certainly, I may have had the idea. I don't know. I love the idea of Coburn. We pursued him. Uh, I don't think he'd worked a whole lot right around that time. And, uh, you know, it was a big deal for me and great to work with him. I just all day long, I'd ask him questions like, what was it like working on duck? You sucker, you know, tell me about, <laughs> tell me about Sergio Leone and how he worked. Tell me about all these movies. And, um, uh, he was a very sweet man and he was very professional, uh, clearly or else he wouldn't have been there. Um, and, uh, and, and he treated me well, but I could tell the whole time that he would just look at me and shake his head and think, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what, we, I don't think we've ever brought, we, we haven't had too many conversations about James Coburn on this show, Gilbert. No. In 320 shows. We've, we've covered a lot of ground. We, we, we have to jump to Danny, but before Danny... William Conrad, of all people, is the narrator of this picture. Yes. And so this happened because we, we'd always conceived of having a sort of fairy tale narrative opening to the movie, but I we never see. really dealt directly with how we were going to do it until the movie was in post. And at that point, I was a huge Bullwinkle fan, you know, oh, a oh, huge yeah. Bullwinkle Fractured fan. And, tale, and right? I said, I said, this fucking movie, look, why don't we see who did, who did the Bullwinkle? Who did the narration for Bullwinkle? And I didn't know. I should. I should have known. It was William Conrad. So I said, "You mean the the Jake and the Fat Man, William Conrad?" <laughs> and people said, "Yes, yep. that's him." So I said, "Well, let's find out if he's willing to do this." And we found out that for whatever the price was, he would be willing to come in and do it. And he was pretty old, and he was pretty crusty. And he came into a recording studio, and all, I remember a couple of things. I remember saying, did you really do all that Bullwinkle stuff? And he did run right into the voice, Frostbite Falls, you know, the whole thing. That's great. And and then I also realized as he came in that he had been a longtime television director, directed hundreds, uh, you know, over, well over 100 episodes of television himself. Didn't know that. So, yeah. And, I knew and he there was, was original no... Matt Dillon. Uh, he was on, on the radio. Really? Gunsmoke, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was an amazing guy. And Willis was in the studio with him and tried to tell him what to do a couple times. And, you know, we were all there. And Willis would say, do it like this. And I remember William Conrad just turning and looking at him and going like, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> it, was a, it was a real meeting of the, of the minds. <laughs> what, what about Danny, who did one of our first episodes of this show? I think it was one of our first twenty-five, Gil, or twenty. But yeah. we just lost—we just lost him too. What a what a what a character! What a larger-than-life guy. 
what a, he is a terrific guy. I mean, he, he in him. a way, he saved me on that movie because he was a prince the entire time. He was very, he was lovely to work with. He was supportive. And, you know, he and Bruce didn't always, they, they were good friends. So he came into it happily and he and Bruce were in, on good terms. By the end, they weren't getting along so well. Um, oh, that's and, bad. Yeah. But, you know, uh, it's a huge loss, Danny. I mean, he's amazing. Yeah, we, we absolutely loved him. You know, it's funny, and, and I, I read an interview with you. I know you've seen some of these articles. I mean, Hudson Hawk certainly has its fans. And, yes, and there are four fun- of them. Well, <laughs> as you know, there, there are these websites, AV Club. There's a, there's a site called Flavor Wire. There's a site called Den of Geek. I'm going to send you these articles. <laughs> Pe- people reevaluating Hudson Hawk. In fact, there was a piece in The New Yorker a couple of years ago. That I read. Where you even got compared to Howard Hawks, which was a, a nice compliment. Every once in a while, I get a backhanded compliment for that <laughs> <movie>. <laughs> But I, I, I think the film, in some ways, is being reconsidered. And, well, and, re- and reevaluated. The, the movie was in many ways, this is ridiculous to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. In some ways, its comic sensibility was a little ahead of its time mm-hmm. because a lot of the things that we were doing and that Daniel wrote and wrote so brilliantly, whether they were done right in the movie or not, is anybody's guess. A lot of those things started showing up later on. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be random here in, uh, uh, you know, something about Mary. Remember that? Uh, sure. Yeah. The dog goes flying out the window, right? Oh, yes. And I watched this and I said, fuck me. We did that joke in Hudson Hawk. <laughs> That's right. And all I did was get punished for it. You know? Yeah. Not that this. The Farrelly bro- and the Farrelly brothers weren't punished for that joke. No, the Farrelly yeah. brothers got, you know, the proper accolades for that joke because in their movie, it was very, very funny. Well, my, my wife wants to know how he had his hat once they were in Rome since they put him in the box in the crate and mailed him to Italy <laughs> without the hat on. How did he still, how did, how did the hat surface when they were climbing the. You the, don't know that all those pellets there didn't contain a, a hat. <laughs> they was in packing peanuts, you know, there was a hat in there. There's a, I have a couple of, I'll, I'll get to a couple of questions from listeners later in the show, Michael, a couple of fans of Hudson Hawk. There is an in joke. There is a Mr. Ed joke, which is a little bit of a of an in joke for you. Yeah, too. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope, which which we'll we'll get to, because you did a Mr. Ed thing for Saturday Night Live years ago. I did. It's my first yeah. professional directing job. Yeah. So so was that intentional, or was it just you just reached for Mr. Ed as a clip when you uh, needed the, the, the clip I, of the Pope? I you know, I, it could have been Dan Waters. Um, doing that as, you know, teasing me about having made a Mr. Ed movie because I believe he wrote that in the script. I mean, it could have been that he wrote that, that the Pope was watching TV and I said he should be watching Mr. Ed. I can't remember, but it's that's certainly within Dan Waters, um, you know, that, that's, his, that's his his kind of humor. I, I, I've never seen a movie where, uh, uh, I can't think of a movie where everybody, uh, in, in one scene where everybody was over the top, where like Sandra Bernhardt's over the top. And and Richard Grant is over the top, and and uh, uh, um, the 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 wonderful um, well Coburn, and the and the 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 bit actors that are playing the CIA agents. Yeah, it's it, it's, it's kind of fun to watch everybody, if I if I may say, overact at the same time. 
Well, what's really fun is that I was telling him to underplay. What's that? What's really funny is that I was telling him to underplay the whole time. Were you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) And David Caruso. That's right. Yes, a mute David Caruso. Very Uh, strange. Yeah, like dancing in a diaper at one point. (laughs) (laughs) I think he becomes a statue, or he's painted like a statue. Yes, he becomes a statue. Yeah, yeah. It's a wild movie. And I I love Danny's line when he survives the fiery crash. Airbags, can you fucking believe it? (laughs) Well, look, you know, we we all talk badly about the film, but when you start going into these little details, there's a lot of stuff in it that is really genuinely very funny. A lot of funny stuff. And and you've always had a good sense of humor about it. I mean, uh, since day one. And you told me on the phone that people still approach you on sets. They do. I, 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 I... Walk onto the set when I'm doing a television show, and invariably, one or two people from the crew go, "Dude, you you directed Hudson Hawk," and I, I say, "I'll give you your I, I'll give you your money back." <laughs> you know, that's all I can do. And they go, "No, no, no! I love that film." I had an actor who told me that it was his favorite movie. He watched it with his father. He introduced me to his father and said. It's Michael. He directed Hudson Hawk, and the father was like, "Wow, incredible to meet you!" So, yeah, they're fans out there, they're, and they're, they're French, like Oots and Hawk. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it, you worked with Francis Ford Coppola. I did. Um, I had that was my first movie job. I I grew up in San Francisco, and Coppola was you know had had his setup in San Francisco, and when I got out of college in New York and came back to, to San Francisco trying to figure out what to do to, to work in the movies, I uh, managed to land a job as the receptionist uh, answering the phones at, at Coppola's company. And I did that. I ended up working uh, for him for a full three years and moved to L.A. on a film called One from the Heart, which is sort of Francis's Hudson Hawk. Yeah, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Terry Gar. What was it? Frederick Forrest? Yep. Yeah, Mary Raul Julia. Raul Julia. Yeah, I remember liking that picture too. Yeah, that that is actually a really that movie needs to be rediscovered, I think, because right. it was a a real failure at the time and uh and a lot of people were disappointed in it following Apocalypse Now, but in fact, it's a very inventive movie and it's visually stunning with uh, the sets by Dean Tavalaris yes. and the Storaro photography is amazing. Yes. And uh it was a quite an education to work on it. And now Coppola, I mean, that's a legendary director. So what do you what did you learn from him? Well, apparently I didn't learn much because I went on to make Hudson Hawk. <laughs> Have you ever talked to Francis about Hudson Hawk? No. <laughs> what, what his take is. I don't know. I'm sure he never saw it. By the way, you're in good company, Michael, because we had Erwin Winkler on this show. And yes. he, man produced Rocky and Goodfellas and the, the wonderful They Shoot Horses, don't they? And all Gilbert would talk about were his flops. Yes, it's fine. I, <laughs> what else do you want to talk? I mean, by the way, when when Hudson Hawk came out, I was at home in L.A. and, you know, a little depressed, as you can imagine. And the phone rang and my, my wife at the time answered the phone and said, Michael, uh, it's Warren Beatty. I said, oh, somebody's fucking with me. I picked up the phone. <laughs> Hi, Michael, it's Warren Beatty. I said, hi, Warren. He goes, I just want you to know, (laughs) basically, that you're in good company. That, you know, he knows what it's like. He made Ishtar. He said, I know what it's like to be in the position you're in. And it was a very supportive and very friendly phone call. What a lovely thing to do. Oh, man. 
You were wow. compared, your film was compared to Ishtar. By Warren Beatty. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but like I really Ishtar. think I really think he was gleefully saying, now people won't talk about Ishtar anymore. They'll <laughs> talk in, about Hudson you're Hawk. In. He was tagging you. You're <laughs> in. Yeah. I like Ishtar too. I must be nuts. Yeah. I must be in the minority. No, but, everybody loves Ishtar now. It was just at the time, nobody liked it at all. Well, we talk about Coppola a little bit. Gilbert was a guest uh, a programmer on TCM, and and one of the films you pick, Gilbert, was The Conversation. Well, right? The con- Conversation is an amazing movie. Gilbert, is yeah. that a favorite of yours? Uh, yeah. Gene Hackman, uh, John Casals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, amazing film. The late Alan Garfield, who we yes. just lost. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Alan Garfield is phenomenal in them. He is. Oh, yeah. and Harrison Ford. Young yes. Harrison Ford, young Cindy Williams. Cindy yeah. Williams. Yeah. What's well, a wonderful movie. Yeah. I, I wonder, I haven't seen it in years. Probably holds up pretty well. It it does. And it was like one of those perfect for its time, because that's when it was a paranoid time period of Watergate and everything. Yeah. He'd kill us if he had a chance. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Something it's like a, that. It's a, it's a terrific. Yeah, the, I missed the I missed the days. I was watching. Uh, what was I watching with my wife? I was watching the uh, the John Grisham uh, picture, the Pelican Brief, Alan Pakula's picture. Yes. And I was talking about those those paranoia thrillers of the seventies. That was great. They don't, they don't make them so much anymore, like the Parallax View and like uh, this one. When I was the receptionist at at uh, Zoetrope at Coppola's company, I put in the Rolodex Harry Call's phone number. Because oh, that cool. that was the character that Gene ah. Hackman played. And I dutifully copied it off of the film to make sure it was right. And it was in the Rolodex. And I thought, if future people coming to do my job, they can place a call and see if they're... That's super wow. cool. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. I asked you this on the phone, but as somebody who knew him, Michael, what, why do you think, what is the psychology of the man in, in terms of how down uh, on the Godfather films he's always been? Uh, one gets the sense that he considered himself to be slumming. I think, you know, Francis is an artist. He really is. And I mm-hmm. think he he felt that that was commercial filmmaking mm-hmm. that I, I, I mean, I think he's probably very proud of Godfather 2. Um, but, you know, I think he, he, he would say things like, um, and I never talked to him about this much cause I wasn't part of those conversations, but he'd say things like, well, if nothing else, I'll always be remembered as the director of the Godfather. And I kind of got the sense he didn't love that, you know, because he felt that his other work of course, was being disregarded. But I mean, you could make the argument that Patton is a commercial film and I mean, I only know he didn't direct that one, uh, yeah, the con- it, the con- I suppose the conversation is more of an art film, and Apocalypse Now is more of an art film. Yeah, I mean, I I think you can say that Finian's Rainbow is is a uh, is a commercial film, or There's is intended to be a commercial film. But you yeah. know, he was doing some work to get to the point where he could make the things that he really wanted to make. Oh, and something popped into my head, totally out of because uh, uh, I always love um, slogans. On movie posters. Oh, taglines? Or... Yeah. yeah. And and for the conversation, it was, Harry Cole is the best in the business. Three people are dead because of him. <laughs> That's great. That's a good one. Did you, you, you met Michael Jackson one day at Zoetrope? 
I did. How did you know that? I know a lot of stuff. Oh, my God. How? So uh, <laughs> it's a very brief story. My job, Michael. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was shooting something on the lot, uh, the, you know, the old Selznick lot, Culver Studios. Mm-hmm. And I was I was there doing something. And, if, and somebody I was with said, hey, do you see that the uh, Airstream trailers is over there? Apparently, Coppola's here. He's shooting Captain EO. And I was part of the team that put that Airstream trailer together. And sure enough, I walked over. There it was. I said, oh, this is hilarious. And I came and I knocked on the door and Francis came to the door. I said, hi, what are you doing here? And he invited me into the into the uh, Airstream. And when I was there, Michael Jackson came by. And he came by with a, a little blonde boy next to him. And, <laughs> was, and, and I, I said, hi, nice to meet you. He said, hi, nice to meet you. And he introduced me to the kid, and it was very, you know, perfectly friendly and and nice. And 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 then I, you know, hung out for a bit and left. And then for months, all I could say is, I met Michael Jackson. I met Michael Jackson. I didn't, you know, I didn't compute anything about the boy that was with him. No chimp. (laughs) (laughs) He never chimp with him. There was no chimp to be had. Disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) Was it Bubbles? Was the chimp? Bubbles. Yeah, well, you call. know, uh, James Coburn had a chimp. Oh, do. Oh, do tell us. He did? Yeah. And <laughs> he, you know, I can't remember how he talked about it one day, uh, how he had this chimp. <laughs> and I, you know, I could barely keep a straight face, but, you know, it was something that I think was very dear to him. And uh, I remember hearing these stories, and, and I think my wife was fascinated by the idea that that Coburn had the chimp as a pet but I don't think he had the chimp anymore in um he didn't travel with the chimp he had a, a very lovely wife and she she came to visit now chimps are horrible animals <laughs> yeah you better hide your scrotum from that. yeah yeah they they go at it they instinctively they'll rip people's sticks and balls apart yes and take their faces off they're yes. horrible fucking animals. They're like film executives. <laughs> the other thing I found interesting about your Zotrope days was you told me that Michael Powell, the legendary director Michael Powell, <laughs> yeah. was hanging around on the lot. The director of The Red Shoes and The oh, Wonderful yeah. Stairway to Heaven and Black, Black Narcissus and so many other classics. It was amazing. He was artist in residence at Zoetrope, and he wandered around the lot. I remember he... he frequently wore a powder blue suit of like a baby blue suit. Wow. And he was a dapper old Englishman and a a complete sweetheart. And he was there to answer questions that anybody who worked on the lot had to ask him. So you'd come up and go, tell me how you did that shot. You know, I saw, uh, well, actually we screened um, Peeping Tom. Oh, that's another good one. Yeah. And uh, we screened it at, actually at Coppola's house for Michael Powell and a bunch of other people. And I was told to run the projector. And I'd never run a projector before. Um, I'd, been, I'd been taught how to thread them. But, you know, they're not that easy to run, a 35 millimeter film projector. And I fucked up every, I messed up every single uh, real change. And finally, Michael Powell came back to the, to the projection room and said, is there anything I can help you with, dear boy? You know, I was I was humiliated. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, and so, so Powell was there. 
John Luke Godard was there. He had yes. an office there. Vin Benders was there doing um, Hammett. It was oh, a yeah. lot of interesting characters in that movie. Wow. What did you tell me about Powell? If you wanted to ask him a question, you had to, you you you, you had to write it down, or you had to you had to. I don't remember that exact. I remember that Francis said Michael Powell is here as artist in residence. You know, abuse him. You know, use him. You sure. Go ask him anything. I don't think. I don't think you had to write it down, but maybe that's true. Maybe somebody else mentioned that. I. <laughs> well, how'd you make? Go ahead, Gil. Oh, and tell us about the making of Ed Wood. So I can tell you about the inception of Ed Wood more than I can tell you about the making of it. Although I was I was around. So here here's what happened in film school. I was with uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. As, as you pronounce <laughs> Thank it. you. Um, in, <laughs> Big fan of Larry Karuski. Yeah, very big fan. Anyway, we were in film school together, and we used to watch Ed Wood movies, and uh, it was part, you know it was part of the culture. And after I had made Hudson Hawk, and after uh, Scott and Larry had had uh, Problem Child made, we were all started figuring out how we were going to resurrect our careers in Hollywood. <laughs> I. I still haven't figured it out. No. Well. <laughs> he got you back, Gil. <laughs> so they called me and they said, we have an idea for a movie that we think you're going to love. And they said, we've read this book, Nightmare of Ecstasy. It's about Ed Wood and his entourage. And we think it would make a fabulous film. And I said, wow, that's a great idea. I didn't know the book. I read it. But I, I said, this is even better because... You guys and myself are three of the only people who know what it's like to wake up on a Friday morning and read in every single paper that we made the worst movie of all time. <laughs> because that's how Hudson Hawk was received, and that's how um, Problem Child was received to a certain degree, except for Gilbert's performance, which was oh, yeah. lauded everywhere. In a class by itself. Yeah. And and so we chuckled about that, and uh, and we talked it through, and basically... Uh, you know, I said, this is a great idea. And and um, they said, we want to take it to Scott Rudin because Scott Rudin had run Fox when they sold their first film, which was called Homewreckers. Um, we never got made, as far as I know. Um, and so they had the relationship with Rudin. And I said, no, uh, Rudin is not the guy for this movie. He's a great producer. He, I know you have the relationship. This is something that Tim Burton would really get. And Denise Denovi, who was Tim's producer at the time, had produced Heathers and Meet the Applegates, my first two films. She was a close friend, and I knew Tim. And I said, I think this is something we should take to them. So I called Denise and I said, uh, my friend Scott and Larry have this idea for a movie based on Ed Wood. It's based on this book. It would make a terrific film. I want to direct it. I think Tim would really get it. You guys should produce it. And she and Denise was like, okay, well, whatever. And we we sent a, an outline or a proposal to Denise, who showed it to Tim. And Denise called me back right away and said, I've got good news and bad news. And I said, what is it? She said, the good news is Tim loves this. Said, Great. The bad news is he really wants to direct it. And I said, well, you know, that's great. I'm glad Tim wants to direct it, but this is for me to direct. And at that time, Tim was doing really well, and, and I was the guy who made Hudson Hawk. So it was, um, although I think, uh, yeah, that was that, uh, that was my last movie. So I was in, in Hollywood uh, director jail and all that. Anyway, long story short, I talked to Tim. He was so invested in making this film just based on Scott and Larry's outline. 
that he said, I will make this movie. And I said, well, you don't know Scott and Larry, so please, I'll turn this over to you uh, as director if you don't fire them until they've done at least three drafts. And also that you make it as your next film. If you don't make it as your next film, then you have to let me direct it and you can produce it. And his next film was supposed to be Mary Riley, the... the um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Julia Roberts. Julia movie. Roberts that I think Stephen Frears did. I think so. And he was on board to make that. And he said to me, and Tim was very good to, true to his word on this, he said, you don't understand. I want to make this movie so badly, I will absolutely make it as my next one. So I said, okay. And... You know, they they gave me an executive producer credit and Scott and Larry wrote their first draft. And, uh, you know, I read it and gave him notes and they took the first draft to Tim. And he, he not only did he not fire them, it started a long relationship. Oh, with sure. Him, uh, but he also shot what I think was very close to what was their first. draft. Um, and, you know, everybody kept they kept me involved which was fun, but I didn't direct the movie and I love the film. I love, oh, I'm all, very love happy it. to have my name. We love it too. How, how, how often were you on set? I was only on set two or three times. Um, I think I went off to make airheads at the same time okay. and I wasn't all that available. And I also felt a little awkward. I didn't want to go on the set and, and, uh, you know, watch somebody else make the movie that <laughs> I hoped I would be directing. But you, were, you, you, you were a good friend. It was admirable of you to protect them that way. I felt like, you know, I couldn't say to Scott and Larry, oh, I'm not going to let Tim direct this um, because for them it was, you know, it was a big deal. Tim Burton was was he, he could have chosen to direct a phone book, as they say, and he and he wanted to do this. So I was never going to get in the way of that. one. What, what would Michael Lehman's Ed Wood have been like? Well, I got to say, honestly, it would not have been as good as Tim's. And, and I say this because I probably wouldn't wouldn't have been able to make it in black and white. Tim fought so hard to make that in black and white and to have it look like an Ed Wood movie that the movie went from Columbia Pictures to Disney. Uh, I don't know if you know this story, but uh, no. uh, he, it was it was set up at um, Sony and Peter Goober uh, wouldn't make it in black and white. At least that's what that's the story I was hearing at the time. And it was basically said, no, I'm not going to make a twenty five million dollar black and white film about some weirdo, trans, cross-dressing, uh, crazy director from the 50s. And Disney, in their, in their foresight, came to Tim and said, we really want to be in business with you. We envision Tim Burton theme parks. We think you would fit into the Disney world perfectly. Now, he'd gone to CalArts, which is a Disney school. Sure. And made Frank and Weenie there. And... Um, so he had some Disney connection, and basically he said, you want to work with me, then you have to make Ed Wood the way I want. And they just said, make the movie. So there's nice no way happens. I could have done that. Sure. I, if I had made the movie, it would have been a million dollars, and it would have looked like it really looked like an Ed Wood movie, but probably in color. <laughs> what did you tell me on the phone about the Lugosi part, that you were the first person to... Uh... Yes, I proudly am the first person to have out read the Lugosi part out loud. At a, oh. at, a script, at a script reading. Yeah, Scott That's and Larry cool. sent me the script, and I called them, and I said, I, I want to just read some of these lines back, and you know, let's shoot this fucker, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And and I was kidding around, but um, they I remember seeing Martin Landau's screen test or his audition. I guess it was audition tape, and it was mind-blowing that he just came in and did it. So uh, I, I'm not – couldn't do it as well as he did. Now – 
Uh, Oscar. You probably don't remember all the lines to it, but uh, the speech about, uh, you know, alone, hunted. <laughs> can, yeah. can you do some of that for us, please? No, I think you have to do that because <laughs> I cannot. Gil, give him a little bit of your Gilbert, you, Please, do it. No home. I have no home. Hunted. Despised. <laughs> Very good. Larry Karuski will be proud. Yeah. How did you get from? I, and, and I know this is a long journey, but maybe you can you can uh, you can shorten it up for us, uh, Michael. What the 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 journey from working for Coppola? You'd you'd wanted to be a filmmaker. Finally, to Heather's, to getting to make your first feature. Yeah, you know, when I when I worked for Coppola, I took the job and applied to USC and UCLA Film School. I didn't really know any other way to do it. You know, mm -hmm. I was a, a kid going to regular college and didn't have it like that. And while I was waiting to hear from the film schools, I got hired by Francis to uh, answer the phones, and I stayed there for three years. Meanwhile, UCLA sent me an acceptance, and I deferred it and said, I'm not going to leave a job working on real movies to go to film school, and USC lost my application. And uh, they never followed up. <laughs> oh, my God. And finally, I called them and I said, how come you guys never responded to my application? And they said, oh, I'd studied philosophy in Germany. And, that, and, I, and I gave them a transcript in German. And they said, well, we, we didn't process the application because you need to translate the German uh, you need to translate the German transcript. And I said, you guys are a university. Go to the fucking German department and, and have them translate it. They said, nope, you have to translate it. I said, how do you know I'm going to translate it accurately? They said, doesn't matter. So I translated it and sent it in and still never heard anything. from them. And after three years at Zoetrope, when Francis had made One from the Heart, was off doing Outsiders and Rumblefish, mm -hmm. and it looked like he was going to go bankrupt or out of business, and I'd done all sorts of cool stuff and was kind of running out of steam there, I got a, a letter from USC saying, we found your application. Are you interested in going? It was three years later. Wow. And I, so I sent him a letter saying, well, in, in the time from when I applied to now, I worked on all these big feature films. Of course. But I never made a movie. So, you know, I actually remember I talked to Francis. I said, is it crazy for me to want to go to film school? And he said, which was they're very true, he said, it's not so much what you'll learn about filmmaking, but it's the chance to make the films and get access to the equipment and the other people that you'll be working with and evidence, Scott and Larry, who, sure. were, you know, so I, I basically left Zoetrope and said, I'll go back to school. And I went back there and made my um, Beaver Gets a Boner. Beaver film. Gets a Boner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I asked you, <laughs> I have the look on Gilbert's face now. <laughs> At some point in this relationship, Michael, I'm going to insist that I get my hands on a copy of Beaver Gets a Boner. Is Scott yeah, in luck. it? Scott Alexander's in it? Yeah, Scott's in it. So, you know, I would not have made that movie. Uh, I would not have directed that movie without Larry. How do we pronounce his name now? Um, uh, Rudy <laughs> Tootie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> without Larry Karaszewski's help, because uh, Larry knew Redbeard Simmons, who wrote the script, who went on to write the script. Uh, with me for Beat the Apple Beat the Gates. Apple and, um, and Larry said, Redbeard has written this amazing script. And uh, 
you should look at it because maybe you can get it made. It, it's the boring stuff is about how hard it is to get a movie made at USC where you have to get faculty approval. But I did manage to get it through. It's called the Be- the Beaver Gets a Boner, and it's <laughs> Gilbert's interested. It was a very funny script. It was a high school movie about a a kid who um, whose mother flushes the drugs he's dealing down the toilet. And he has to get the money back to pay his supplier, who uh, the supplier is played by um, uh, Tony Cox, who was the little person who oh, played yeah, in yeah, Bad Santa. Santa. Yeah. yeah. So Tony Cox plays this kid's drug supplier. And Tony says, I'm going to I'm going to cut your balls off. You know, going back to that old trope, uh, I'm, I'm going to cut your balls off if you don't pay me. So the kid applies for a scholarship at his high school and goes straight. And it's about him going straight, trying to trying to please everybody to get the scholarship. And uh, I'll I'll throw a spoiler in because it's not worth watching the whole movie. But he gets the scholarship and finds out that they don't actually give him the money. They send it straight to the college and he goes on a rampage. And part of the rampage is to take a chainsaw and put it in the between the legs of the beaver, which is the school mascot from behind. So the beaver getting a boner is from the chainsaw coming through his legs from behind. Got it. Okay, so it has nothing to do with Jerry Mathers. Nothing whatsoever. <laughs> but this, but this was pivotal for you making this, it was making this film. It was first of all because the script was really funny, and we, you know, it wasn't like a USC student film. USC student films typically at that time were uh, sweet little stories about somebody trying to find a way to get away from their midwestern home and go to the big city and do something important. Uh, there were a lot of coming of age movies, and nobody made comedies there. And if they made comedies there, they were they had to be very highbrow. So this was like an underground comic or a John Waters movie or something like that, which is what I wanted to do. And uh, it was pivotal because the movie was funny enough that it got me an agent and got me. Into- how, how did you get? Uh, how did you and Dan meet? And and how did Heather's come to be? So Dan was friends with Larry Karaszewski in mm-hmm. way back in high school. And Dan did not go to USC film school, but he was around. And I met him through Larry and Scott and these guys, and we hung out. I didn't know him very well. Larry called me one day and said, "Can I had an agent uh, by the name of Bobby Thompson, who was really terrific, had great taste at William Morris. And uh, Larry called me and said, Dan wrote this amazing script. Uh, we took it to our agent, and she didn't get it. Can you take it to Bobby Thompson? And, uh, and I read Heather's, and I said, phenomenal and i took it to bobby and she she took him on as a client and and helped get the movie made and when stanley kubrick passed i jumped in and said i can direct this where i had a deal because because dan's dream was to have stanley kubrick make it yes it's still his dream right (laughs) (laughs) right And, and that film i heard barely got made yes barely got made because if people now, they always say, oh, you know, you couldn't get a movie like that made nowadays. Well, you couldn't really get a movie like that made in those days either. It was, uh, there was one guy, a guy named Steve White, who was head of production at New World Pictures, who had uh, the ability to green light movies under a certain budget. And he saw The Beaver Gets a Boner and he made a deal with me and he read Heather's and he loved the script. And he just said, I'll make this film. And um, he he made us change a few things, but basically he, he stuck pretty close to what Dan's script was and, and we made it. 
there was really nobody else who was willing to make that move. Roger Corman's old company. Roger Corman's old company, but at that time, Corman had sold it. Right. And um, there were three guys, um, Bob Ramey and Huppen and Sloan, these three guys who, who had put the company together and really built it on uh, selling movies to making movies for the home video market, which was was blowing up in the late. You could you could see the reluctance even then, and this of course you know predates school shootings and 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 bombings and things of that nature. But you could see, I mean, this this is this is risky material, as you said, yes. e- even then. Yes, even you know, then. Teens, a comedy about teen suicide, uh, you know, within uh, in in Daniel's original script with a climax that involves blowing up the school, exactly, and a and a he- and a prom in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Bless, bless his heart. Yes, that's what Steve White said. He said, I, I'm not going to make this movie if, um, if they blow up the school and have the prom in heaven. He said, you cannot have your lead character, the Winona Ryder character, mm-hmm. end up blowing up the school, basically killing herself and everybody else. He said, all it takes is one copycat and you're going to feel very bad about it. And I said, I don't know. I don't, you know, <laughs> these things happen. Um, I think he was but- smart. Yes, yeah, I think he was smart too. Why wouldn't Doris? Why couldn't you use the the Doris Day version of Kesara Sara for the for the opening credits? You know that Doris Day had like a you know a jar uh, at the bandstand that if anybody used a swear word, they had to put a quarter in there. I, I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you the question anyway. I mean, I think you know we tried to license it and uh, we couldn't, and then I got Sid Straw to sing uh, sing one version of it for the main mm-hmm. titles, and then. Uh, and then Larry actually pointed out that Sly Stone, who was a favorite of mine, I'd seen him perform when I was a kid in the 60s. Uh, Sly Stone did this terrific, bizarro recording of the song. And in, in a lot of ways, it's better than Doris. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Gilbert on the phone, too. There were actors who turned it down because, was it Heather Graham? Was it Jennifer Connelly, whose parents wouldn't let them be in the picture? Yes, uh, Jennifer Connelly was... Dan Waters kind of ideal for the role of Veronica. And I love Jennifer Connelly. So I said, well, shit, let's just go to her. And she was 17 and her parents controlled her career. And we got a negative response. I don't know if she ever read it. I'd never Uh talked to her about it. Uh, And then I tried to cast Heather Graham as the, the Heather who goes through the coffee table as Heather Chandler. And Heather Graham gave a, just knocked it out of the park in an audition. She was amazing. And uh, and then we were told, well, uh, too bad. Her parents won't let her do the film. And I said, I'm not going to take no for an answer on this. And apparently her father was an FBI agent and her mother was a, was a very intelligent but far right wing Orange County school teacher. And I got in a long, maybe two hour phone conversation with the mother wow. trying to convince her that that this movie was really not what she thought it was, but pretty much it was exactly what she thought. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I got nowhere. Why? Do, why does Heather? Uh, why does the first Heather? You just said her last name, Chandler. Uh, he, why does Heather Chandler? Does she say the words "corn nuts" as she's dying? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a scene preceding that, uh, from essentially the night before. She and Winona's character stop off at a what was scripted as a 7-Eleven, but it is a convenience store. And when when Winona goes into the convenience store, 
Heather yells out to her, corn nuts, like get me some corn nuts. And that is, those are her last <laughs> words right before That's one of my favorite moments. <laughs> yeah, here's a film people are still talking about through 30 years later. Michael, yes, I mean, that, that and Hudson Hawk. Yeah, but but well, obviously for different reasons. Last year was the thirtieth anniversary of Heather's, and you gave you gave a lot of interviews. It must be pleasing that 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 this film means so much to people. Has inspired a musical, a TV series. Yeah, all these years later, your first movie. You're in your twenties, for God's sake. That's right, and also it it was really, really, really fun to make. You know, it, it, as you guys know, it's not always fun to make a movie. There, there, it's a perilous path. There's lots of stuff that that's filled with tension and difficulty and on a production level and on a personality level, blah, 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 the, just down the line. And that movie was blessed, I guess, because uh, as dark as it was and as, and as committed as we were to making that really dark film, we, we managed to, we managed to do it and we all had a good time doing it. So yeah. It's funny because Alan Arkin was on the show recently mm -hmm. and he said, uh, I remember him saying that, uh, this was years ago, he said when he watches movies, he still watches them and thinks, oh, that looks like it would be fun to do. And he says it never is when no. you're doing it. <laughs> it's true. You know, I, tr I, tried, I actually try very hard to, to make the set be a fun place and certainly a safe place, you know, a place where people can do their work and and enjoy it. But there were many years, I think after Hudson Hawk, there were many years <laughs> where I I had trouble getting to that happy place. <laughs> well, Meet the Applegates looks like it was fun to make. It was fun to make. It the thing about Meet the Applegates was this was something that Redbeard and I pitched to New World. And we had actually pitched the idea to them before Heathers was even uh, mm -hmm. set up. And it's about a family of giant insects, and it's pretty It's pretty crazy. We had a great time writing it's it. It's a crazy movie. It's a crazy movie. And we didn't have much money to work with, and, and I didn't think the script was ready, but the, the Writers Guild was going on strike. And New World was not a signatory. They were not a signatory to the Writers Guild. And when the writers were going on strike, I, as the co-writer of the film, along with Redbeard, said, we're not going to write on this. You guys are going to have to wait. And they said, are you kidding? We're not part of the guild. Write the, write the script. And I, being a kind of a stubborn young guy, said, no, I'm going to wait until the strike is over. And as a consequence, we never really fixed all the problems. I don't know if the problems of that script could have ever been fixed because it was way out there. But I felt like the, making the movie was a ton of fun, but we were struggling all the time like, how do you make a movie about a family of giant chameleonic insects from the rainforest who come <laughs> to pose as a typical American family in order to blow up a nuclear power plant and make yes. the world safe for bugs? How do you make that work anyway? It's, a, you know. I love the balls that you had at that at that point in your life. You're just making you're just making these crazy things you want to make. Well, I when we came up with that one, we never thought it would get made. Uh huh. You know, and then we would make jokes. We'd say it's going to be like the Saturday Night Live sketch with the bees and, you know, the killer bees. But, but you know, we've made the script as funny as we could. I, I love the idea. Redbeard is a very, very funny writer. We had a great time putting it together. Uh, but we still never thought it would get made. And it was only because um, Heather's 
which was made first. Um, Heather's turned out pretty well in the shooting. And New World said to me, we're going to make this. So we made it. I was telling Gilbert, it's not only a movie about giant bugs from the Amazon that, that assume human form, but Dabney Coleman is a giant bug in drag. Yes. <laughs> in, in human form. Dabney Coleman is what they now call gender fluid. Right. <laughs> we were way ahead of that game. We were way ahead. Her name was Aunt B. Aunt B. B you know, Aunt and a B. It was a right. bad pun. Very good. And and uh, and the thing is, is that nobody understood at the time. They said, well, is Aunt B male or female? I said, Aunt B is a bug. What does it matter? <laughs> you're, you're a giant bug. What does it matter what sex you are? And so, uh, and Dabney was a really fun to work with. Oh, was he? And a very, very talented guy. Oh, yeah. Gilbert worked with him. Gilbert, you work with Dabney Coleman on Hot to Trot? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, hot, hot to Trot was another. Uh, <laughs> it was another Hudson Hawk. <laughs> yeah, that was with um, uh, Bob Goldthwaite, uh, Dabney Coleman. That, that was a bad movie. I think Buck Henry turns up in that one. Uh, yes. In fact, I ran into Buck Henry years later, and I said, we were in the same movie, and he said, H-T-T. -T. <laughs> oh, he wouldn't, he wouldn't yeah, say the yes. words. <laughs> That's a bad sign. You know, you heard in the intro, Michael, that Begley was here, the nicest man in show business, by the way. He is absolutely, he's nicer than the nicest man he's in the show nice, business. I thought Henry Winkler was the nicest man in show business, but but Ed is going to, giving giving him a run for his money. Uh, a, a, a sweet guy. Uh, and he, Of course, he's. I'm watching this thing, and he's running naked through a power plant. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, this guy commits. Yes, he had quite a quite a fun time. We were, we were working in a big power plant in um, Appleton, Wisconsin. And uh, I remember saying to Ed, you know, are you comfortable with this? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. He was wearing a sock, you know, to cover yeah. cover his uh, uh, his privates. And he yeah. Yeah. dashed through the place. <laughs> well, he's naked in, uh, in Amazon yeah. Women on the Moon. Yes. Oh, where they do the takeoff <laughs> on uh, the Invisible yeah. Man. Yeah, he's yes. naked in that whole yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, talk about black comedies. I mean, that's a black comedy. Heather's is a black comedy. By the way, uh, and Heather's... A, the Jeffersons is a black comedy. No, yes, that's it. different, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Pretty Poison and Heather's would make a good double bill. You know that picture? Yes, they, they Anthony would. Perkins, Tuesday Well? I think they've probably been on a double bill somewhere, sometime in, in the yeah. history of... Uh... You're attracted to this as a genre, as uh, bl uh, black comedies, which we've talked about on the show. Uh, Gilbert just brought up Alan Arkin, who made a good one in Little Murders. Yeah. Are, are, are they hard to make because they're hard to sell overseas because the humor is so uh, American? Are they hard to make because executives just don't get the joke? We just lost Carl Reiner, who made a wonderful one in Where's Papa? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, they're hard to make. Th yes, primarily. They, they don't sell well overseas. American comedies generally don't sell as well overseas as we would expect. Because quite often, the people that we think are funny in the States don't really translate. This is why more physical comedians, people whose humor is, is physical, tend to export pretty well. Um, if it's verbal, then it doesn't necessarily translate well. Yeah. Um, but dark humor, even though pretty much every other, certainly every other Euro European culture has great tradition of dark humor, 
sure. what we do here as dark humor does not necessarily translate well. And it, it's also true, it just doesn't even work generally for a commercial American audience. So if you go to a studio and you say, I want to make a dark comedy, they basically say, thank you very much, but we're not interested. It's very hard to get them interested. And, you know, Dan wrote a great script that that was that drew their attention, mm -hmm. but still no major studio was a film. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you do see it on television now. You see it in a series like Fargo. Yes. Uh, in some of the series you've directed. Dark comedy, Californication. Right. Th that's yeah. why I, in a way, that's that that motivated a lot of my move to television is because I was finding better dark comedy in the sphere of, at that time, you know, cable television, high quality television, whatever. That's where dark comedies could be made. And it's it's still true. But although it's hard to get those made in television as well. You know? what, one thing we've talked about on this show a lot, and that's like, Movie theaters as an experience are basically dead. Yeah, for, uh, for the moment at least, you know, it's it. Uh, but I think if you said that to a young viewer, they'd say, "No, uh, I watched the Avengers Ultron fifty thousand times." You know, sure. did people still go up until COVID? People were still going to the theaters, but only for a spectacle. They weren't going for humor, which I think is too bad because. You, you remember how much fun it was to sit in a theater and have everybody laughing. That does yeah. not happen the way it used to. Yeah. Well, it, your, intro, your introduction of the Marx Brothers was seeing them in a movie theater. Yeah. 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 And everybody was laughing. And it's, you know, laughter is infectious. You, you really want to be in a group. And, and it's like there were movies where the entire audience is laughing or a horror film where everyone screams. Right. Or uh, like... You know, uh, Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood movie. Someone gets shot and everyone's cheering. Yes. it That, I wonder, I mean, is that dying? Is that going to come back when people can go to to theaters again? It's. I think economically it's it's hard to justify theatrical releases if you're not on the level of those huge franchise movies. Yeah. Well, I'd love to blame it on COVID, but uh, Gilbert, as we've talked about many times, New York's losing theaters oh. all the time. It's pre... It's not. It's pre uh, pre pandemic yeah. problem. I don't know about San Francisco. I don't know about your home. Your your home. Uh, your part of the country. But here, we we lost the Ziegfeld, which was our show place. Yeah, you know. And every movie that you know, you think about the movies that you were favorites of yours, and you go, that could never come out in the theater now. It's not worth it for them. Right. Something like Touch of Evil or or Asphalt Jungle, the movies that Michael's very fond of. You could not get those. In, I mean, I guess if you had whoever the, you know, the one major star that could do it, it might get released, but it probably wouldn't be a huge hit. You know, right. Yeah. I mean, what would you do today? Who would who would be the Charlton Heston character in Touch of Evil? That's a good question. Oh, yeah. yeah that could never happen. Unless Tom Hanks really wanted to make it. Yes. Or George Clooney. George Clooney is a Mexican border cop. <laughs> well, I never... <laughs> I mean, no more ridiculous than Charlton Heston as a Mexican border cop. Well, it's tough to get more ridiculous than that. Well, I know you're a Hal Ashby fan, too. And, uh, you know, those Ashby films are small films. Gilbert's very fond of The Last Detail. Yes. We just had Carol, just had Carol Kane here talking about it. But but being there or The Landlord uh, or, or Shampoo, they, they don't, they're, they're certainly not tentpole pictures. Are they even movies that could make it in theaters? I don't, you know... Um, 
for being there. Recently, I I talked to someone who was in their 30s and they'd just seen shampoo. And and they said, it's amazing. I said, yeah. I said, does it hold up? And they said, it does. And this this was a young writer. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, I was looking at it to see if it could be remade. And I said, what do you think? He said, no, absolutely not. You couldn't remake that now. But um, at least he, he felt. But he said that the movie held up. No, Hal Ashby made some amazing films. Yeah. And when you think about the great actors of the 70s, you know, like Hoffman, Pacino, De Niro, Gene Hackman, Nicholson, their entire careers couldn't happen nowadays, the type of movies they made. Right. Uh, it's hard to see where that would fit. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you tell me who's the 25-year-old contemporary Gene Hackman. He doesn't exist. No, I mean, if something like the conversation, or 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 Harold and Maude, or or uh, or 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 being there, or or the last detail were written today, I I, I would imagine it would have to be some kind of cable original, some some yes. kind of some kind of Netflix project. Yeah, but that happened to Broadway too. I mean, ten, the tentpole equivalent, you know, little little plays got shut out of Broadway a long time ago. Right. For 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 lavish productions, and now the same things happen to cinema. The thing that I like to do to stay positive about it all is at least recognize that there are so many more venues to watch things. That's true. And and it, as a consequence, so many more venues to make things for that, yes, we lose the big theaters, we lose that that experience, that may never come back. But it's also true that, you know, you can take an iPhone and make a movie and put it up on YouTube. It's not easy. It's not easy to do a good one, but we couldn't do that when I was uh, when I started making movies. That was just out of the question. What was your theater? We talked about this on the phone. The place where you, where as a kid, you saw all these wonderful pictures, where you got your film education. Uh, I saw the the Pacific Film Archive in Pacific Berkeley film was archive. huge. You know, uh, a guy named Tom Luddy was running it back then. He's still around. He's a, he's a producer, and so, before him, Sheldon Renan, and they would um, program. All this incredible stuff, American American movies from the past that were really obscure. They do a noir series, mm-hmm. and they pull out all the most obscure films, and they get great prints. And they would have somebody connected to the movie come and talk. Wow. And the way the theater was set up, you could not have a head in front of you. That was the best thing about it. That was a very sloped, um, sloped rows of seats. So when you went, you knew you were going to see the movie and not look at the back. Like the failure here in New York, Gilbert, remember? Oh, yeah. There were art houses here. We talked about it when we talked, Michael. There were art houses here. There was the Biograph. There was the Regency. There was the St. Mark's Cinema. There was the yeah. 8th Street Playhouse. I, uh, I remember I used to like to see the Marx Brothers in those theaters. Sure, yeah. Because I wanted to see it on a big screen. And it was always fun when there was a movie you heard about from years ago, and you could now watch it in the big screen. I was really into those art house films. We have the Film Forum is still here, but it's almost nothing. It's 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 been reduced to one or two places. I mean, they have the uh, I guess there's the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn. Yes, the, yeah. Al, that's the, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. They didn't they um, trot out Meet the Applegates recently, or was it Airheads? Uh, they no Meet the Applegates. Yeah. I went and I yeah. you know I talked to. Uh, must have been six or seven people in the audience that yeah. uh, came to watch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a great time. It was it was fun to. And those guys are very nice, and and they they really support you know 
oddball movies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gilbert, here's a wild card question from Michael that you're going to like. Okay. I found this in I found this in my notes about Michael. You have a memory, a fond memory of seeing the Three Stooges around the world in a daze. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that one? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's with, when the the period of Curly Joe Dorita. Is that a yes. Dorita one? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I. You know, I watched. Three Stooges on television as a kid, like crazy, all the time. Yeah. They were my favorites, right? Yeah. But I don't, you know, I was too, I guess it was past the time when their when their movies would be on the big screen, you know? So uh, I didn't even, I remember as a little kid, I loved them like crazy, but I didn't even know that you'd go to a movie theater to see them. Yeah. And yeah. Curly, yeah, Curly Joe Dorita was like, all right, he's fat and he's bald, so good enough. <laughs> uh, hilarious. Speaking of theater experiences, and I read this about you too. You said you you thought you were too jaded to be scared by a horror movie, but then you saw The Exorcist. Yeah, that was one of the. I was a senior in high school, and I I I'm a Jewish kid. I didn't know anything about exorcisms. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my friend said, uh, this movie, The Exorcist, is opening. We should go see it. And I remember thinking, yeah, I've, I've read about that. That's some sort of horror film. Fine, let's go. I was scared out of my pants. I couldn't believe it. I've never been so scared in a theater. And that is a truly frightening film. Yeah. And that was Gilbert one likes of that one. those, yeah, that was one of those films. Well, I mean, The Godfather too. It was uh, one of those films where everyone was talking about it. And then when I remember that feeling of finally sitting in the theater and the lights start getting a little darker and you go, oh, shit, now I'm going to see it for myself. Yeah. That, that whole feeling of theater. Gilbert, what was the first movie you saw in a theater? Do you remember? Oh, God, I don't know. It, it Something but, your parents would have taken you to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember seeing an awful, an awful Bob Hope movie. I think that was, uh, <laughs> that was uh, at the Bob Hope period when he would wear a hat. <laughs> what, like I'll take Sweden, that period? Yeah, that period, yeah. <laughs> right. This might have been called, did it, was he in Bachelor in Paradise? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I think sure. I, that's one of the earliest I remember. Wow, yeah. I think mine was the Happiest Millionaire with John Dave with podcast guest John Davidson. Oh, and, I remember and that. And Fred one. McMurray. Yes, a, a, a Disney a Disney <laughs> joint. What was yours, Mike? I think I think my first movie, first time in the theater, was to see Pinocchio, the Disney animated oh, film, because yeah. I remember also being horrified by being inside of a whale. Um. You know, the, I remember that sequence, but I'm trying to remember what my first live action film was. God, you know, I don't know. It would have been, it might have been, I, I keep thinking there were movies like, remember What a Way to Go? Oh, yeah. yeah. Shirley uh, McClane? Uh, yeah, with Shirley McClane. Yeah, where all the husbands Oh, die. it's like Dean Martin yeah. is in it. Yeah, and, I think yeah. Robert Mitchum. Yeah. I feel like I saw that early on in the theater because it also had a big impression. I remember seeing The Music Man also. Okay. Yeah. Which I didn't like that much. Yeah. That soured me for movies for many years. It's a great performance. It's not necessarily a great picture. No. Uh, I'm going to send you two episodes of this podcast as they relate to two, of the, two films that you sent me on your list. Maltese Falcon. We had Danny Houston on the show. 
Oh. And Gilbert did, Gilbert did a little of his, uh, I'm going to make him do it for you now. Gilbert, give him a little Joel Cairo. <laughs> no, it's you who bundled it. You're it, your stupid attempt to buy it. Kevin found out how valuable it was. No <laughs> wonder he had such an easy time getting it. You imbecile. You bloated fathead. What do you think, Mike? I think that is fantastic. <laughs> that is great. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. send you the Danny Houston episode. Hey, I like talking to a man who likes to talk. I distrust the clothes mouth man. <laughs> so I had a third cousin who looked, it was a dead ringer for Sydney Green Street. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. He, he, and he was, he lived in Scarsdale. He was a, a very sophisticated, really interesting man who was, uh, if I remember right, uh, his name was Jules. He was my uncle Jules. He was from from Alexandria, Egypt, and he was uh, half Jewish, quarter Egyptian, quarter Italian. And somehow after the war, he was married to my father's cousin who was from Berlin, and she went to Egypt to, during the war and met this man. Uh, and he he told all these stories, and he would say, they tell me I look like <laughs> I'd go, yeah, you look exactly like him. And he was a gourmet chef and great, great guy. But he looked to a T. You know, when you watch Maltese Falcon, I always thought if you didn't know any of the people in the cast and said, just show me one movie that is the definitive role for each one. Oh, yeah. It would have to be Maltese Falcon. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenal movie. And, you know, if you read the novel, the movie is word for word. What's the what's in the novel? And that never happened. No. And how come? I mean, it's funny. Now, if you were to say, I'm going to remake the Maltese Falcon, it would be sacrilege. But that was like, I think, the third version. Is that true? Yeah, I think there was. Was there a silent version? Uh, there was one with Ricardo Cortez, right, right, and I think Dwight Fry in the uh, Peter Lorre part, mm-hmm. and then there was a Betty Davis one called Satan Was a Woman, I think, <laughs> and and it's like yeah, it had been filmed before. The third one, the I mean the Ricardo Cortez one is practically also word for word, and yet it doesn't work like the Bogart one. Well, that's a superb cast, and and it's also you know really well directed. John Huston just got the tone of every single character just right. It's a wonderful movie. It's a movie that you, you, it just makes me happy to sit and watch. The other episode I'm going to send you relates to your choices because we had Peter Fonda on the show. Oh, and we asked him his favorite performance of his dad's, and he said, "My darling Clementine." And then when he said it, he got very choked up. Uh, at, it's a perfect film. It is a perfect, you know, I had heard about, I'd seen John Ford movies as a kid on TV and I knew the titles and I knew the movies, but I'd never really given them a whole lot of thought. And then when I was a little older and people always talked about the searchers and they talked about John Ford, I, I caught uh, Darling Clementine, I think maybe at the Pacific Film Archive, I saw it in a theater and I was a teenager and I was blown away. Me too. I, I just think it's 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 an amazing film. I think it's his best film, and I don't. Maybe a lot of a lot of Ford scholars don't agree. 
And you're also fond of a Gilbert favorite, and that's the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes. <laughs> well. <laughs> now, how can you not? How can you not love them? We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Now, the the problem I have with that film, and it's funny. I notice I'll remember TV shows and movies where in my mind, in my memory, I've edited them. <laughs> and and I think everyone edits Invasion of the Body Snatchers with the ending being him running in traffic going, no, no, they'll stop, watch out, they'll take over your body. And it doesn't end with that. It ends with like some boring bullshit like, the cops go, okay, we'll get on this right away. <laughs> You're right. I don't, I remember it. Uh, I, I've edited the ending just like you did. Yeah. Cause that's a much stronger ending. Yeah. I like the re I like Phil Kaufman's remake too. Remake's good. Yeah. Yeah. Donald Sutherland, Leonard Nimoy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Brooke Adams. A couple of quick, quick questions from listeners uh, before we let you get out of our, our clutches, Michael. Okay. TKD Sand loves the show that you directed, Blunt Talk. Yes. Uh, quite underrated. What was it like to work with that cast, specifically the great Patrick Stewart? Yeah, that that uh, that show was a real pleasure to do. You know, uh, Jonathan Ames, who'd done the show Bored to Death and was a friend of mine, um, conceived the show, and he put it together around Patrick Stewart. And Patrick is a lovely person and a obviously he's an incredible actor and what i found was that he was agreeable he was fully you know professional and great to work with but he also was having fun doing comedy because i got the sense that he just hadn't done that much comedy and so he you know he was a pleasure on set because i think he really enjoyed the process although as as you guys know when you make comedy it's can be very painful and very difficult, especially when you're saying, eh, it's funny, but I think we can do something a little better. Let's try something different. And, um, it, you know, he lost patience every once in a while, but he was really superb. And the cast in general, you know, Jackie Weaver. Oh, was amazing. Um, Karen Sony, who the Indian uh, actor who I'd worked with before, he's terrific. Um, Tim, um, uh, Tim Sharp is amazing. Uh, you know, Mary, th th that that cast was superb. And Jonathan's writing is like nothing else. I'm a huge fan of Bored to Death. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. You directed uh, our friend Dick Cavett in a Bored to Death episode. I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Where he gets tackled by J uh, Jason Schwartzman, saves him from John Hodgman trying to sabotage the... <laughs> yes. Great yeah. television. How was Dick? Do you have any memories of that? I know it was a decade ago. No, no, no. He was, you know, first of all, uh, like, you know, like you guys, I, or, or Gilbert, I'm sure you did. I grew up watching Dick Cavett. Yes. And, yes, and so just to meet him was amazing for me. I was all over myself. You know, I can't believe it. Dick Cavett's going to be here. And Jonathan was uh, really excited to have Dick Cavett on the show. He was great to work with. He was very good natured. He was super sharp. And he did magic tricks for us. Did you know he's an amateur <laughs> magician? Yes, indeed. We've had him here four times. Oh, and, so yeah. he got up and did magic tricks for the crew. It was amazing. And he's one of those guests. We've had him on the podcast a bunch of times. 
and he's one of those guests where you could put the mic in front of him and then Frank and I can go out for lunch. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we have. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say, Bored to Death is a show that people need to find. I know it's a, it's a decade old. You, the Jim Jarmusch episode that, that, you, uh, that you directed me to is, is also hilarious. Um, yes, I think that and the Dick Cavett one are my two favorites. But I, you, I did a bunch of them, and, and they were always fun to do. Yeah. He, and he's a very good writer, Jonathan Ames. He's a terrific writer, and he's also um, just an interesting person. He, he's a great guy. He's good, very complicated in the good sense of complicated. He's very thoughtful. And he has, a, he has a, oddly, a very gentle sense of humor. You know, his, his, his sensibility sometimes goes dark, but mm-hmm. always with this incredible sympathy for the characters yes. he writes about. I, I'm a I'm a fan. I, I promised Gilbert that I would let you tell the story of casting Joe Mantegna in Airheads. By the way, another favorite actor of ours, and and you got some opposition because the the, the studio said, well, he's not a comedy actor. Right. But what happened when Kevin Spacey came into audition? Can you well, tell so that? The the uh, the casting for that movie was interesting in general because you know Brendan Fraser, fine, he was a bit of a star, and that was easy to get through. Adam Sandler had never really done anything outside right. of, um, you know, he hadn't done a big movie yet. So I had to fight for that, although he was on SNL. So the studio was OK with it. I had to fight like crazy to get Steve Buscemi on because he was an indie actor. And the studio was like, we don't work with guys like that. We're not making Pulp Fiction here, all this sort of stuff. And then I was trying to find the perfect uh, man to play the DJ. Ian the Shark. Kevin, yes. And, and Kevin Spacey came in. And gave a really good audition and then turned to me and said something to the effect of, you know, you have to cast me in this. I'm better than anybody who's going to do this. And this is I was born to play this role. Now, I, you know, I knew his work a little bit. I thought he was a terrific actor, but he scared me to death. I don't know why. I, I thought <laughs> I don't, he, he's his confidence level was so high. And as an actor, to make the choice in an audition to say, basically, you have to cast me because I'm that good and I want this and I could really knock it out of the park. It scared me. But I then I second guessed myself a lot, like, oh, my God, you know, I'm turning Kevin Spacey down. He wasn't quite as uh, he wasn't as well known then as, as he subsequently became. And nobody I didn't know anything about his personality or what he was like to work with. But he scared me in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and then. We, we were going through a lot of names, and, and I said, what about Joe Mantegna? Because I, I loved his stuff. You know, I loved uh, everything I'd seen him in. And, uh, and I went to the studio, and I said, I, I found out that Joe was interested. And I went to them, and Peter Chernin, who ran Fox, was like, no. <laughs> you can't cast <laughs> Joe Mantegna in this role. He's a great actor, but he's not a comedy actor. He, he wanted me to cast Robert Wool, who is, you know, great actor also, but I had I it in Robert. my head. It had to be Joe Mantegna. And then I, then I sat down and talked to Joe and Joe told me that he had posed, he'd done a print ad for a guitar amplifier in the sixties that I remembered. I remembered seeing the ad in Rolling Stone and cream magazine and all these sort of old, uh, you know, sixties rock and roll magazines. He had this big bush of dark hair and a mustache and was, I can't remember the, the, uh, the brand name for the amplifier was not a well-known one. And I said, that was you? And he goes, that was me. 
And I said, well, I got to cast you. So I was I was intent on getting in the movie, and I managed to. That's one of the great comedy casts assembled, by the way. I mean, with Sandler and, and, uh, and uh, well, Montaigne is funny, but Chris Farley, Michael Richards, Harold Ramis turns up. Buscemi's yes. funny as hell. Yeah, it was, that was a fun movie to make. And I'll tell you, when I, uh, Harold was a friend, and um, uh, Harold likes, liked to act. He was always, you know, Harold was a brilliant writer and a great director, loved but him. he loved to act. And um, we, we had this role of a record executive, or actually an undercover cop pretending mm-hmm. to be a record right. executive. And uh, I went to him and I said, will you do this? And he, you know, he read it and he, he looked at who was in the movie and all. He said, sure, I'll come in and do that. When Harold stepped on the set, everything stopped. And all those comedians, all those comedy actors, they thought God had walked on the set. It was really wow. amazing to see because almost all of them had, you know, I think Caddyshack was a huge movie for every one of them. Sure. Yeah. For a lot of people. And for me too. By the yeah. Way. Um, yeah. But uh, it was, it was a, Pleasure to see how Harold was revered by everybody, and and he was you know you can't how can you dislike a comedy that's loosely based on Dog Day Afternoon? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 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 and has a re- recurring joke about naked photos of B. Arthur. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, we talked about Larry Sanders uh, uh, on the phone too, and you directed five episodes, in, in, including the roast episode, which. Featured among other people, the late great Carl Reiner. Yes, we just lost. I know. You're, you, again, you're a young guy, and now you're directing Carl Reiner. I would. I couldn't believe it. You know the the lineup of comedians that they got to come in and do the roast included uh, Carl Reiner, Kip Adada, Norm uh, Crosby, Norm Crosby, Carrot Top, yep. uh, John Stewart. Right. I think Bill Maher, Bill Maher, uh, Dana uh, Carvey, Al Franken, Dana Carvey, Al Franken. Yeah, yeah it was this this incredible lineup of intimidating comedians and they all got up and did their thing at Carl Reiner was a, a gentleman and a sweetheart. And every, once again, it was like working with Harold, everybody else on the set was in awe of Carl Reiner and what he'd done and who he was. Um, and, and those guys all, you know, you guys, you live in the world of stand up and know about all this stuff. I had never done, st- I'd never been around stand up people that much. To see what these guys could do when they just came and riffed. Was- I, I, yeah, I watched it yesterday. I wondered how much of that riffing you shot and how much of it was scripted. Because I know Gary was having a problem and he kind of left. He was having a fight with Brad Gray by that yes. point and he just disappeared. And what, you had to, did you have to patch that episode together? Yeah, kind of. What happened was that the Sanders show shot in two days. Um, it was a very interesting process. Monday, there would be a table read. Uh, Tuesday would be rewrites, Wednesday would be rehearsals, and then we'd shoot the show, which ran about a half hour on Thursday and Friday. And anybody who knows about the television production schedules, that means we were shooting about sometimes as much as 16 pages of material in a day. Wow. And uh, and it, they were very, they were highly charged, really fun episodes to do, but there was a lot to get done. We did the roast on the first day, and we had all these comedians in, and in fact, some of it was scripted. A lot of it wasn't. Yeah. A, a lot of th- those guys were told, just do your bluest material and direct it towards Larry Sanders. <laughs> and so It's a lot of sodomy jokes. Yes, a yeah. lot of sodomy jokes. That is, I think Kip Adada came in and did a whole thing about Larry fucking a sheep, right? Yeah. I mean, yep. Was, yep. 
and and uh, and it was really funny. And um, so we did that. We shot that day. It was mostly mostly the roast itself on that day. Maybe a couple other things. And unbeknownst to me, uh, Gary and Brad Gray were both having a huge fight. You know, Brad was his manager. He was a producer on the show. Neither one of them are still alive. They were they were both. I was close with both of them. Mm-hmm. And. Gary called me the night after the first day of shooting, and he said, uh, Michael, I'm really sorry, but uh, you're going to have to shoot the rest of the episode without me. And he was in every scene scheduled to shoot the Unreal. next day. It was all the buildup to, to the roast. And I said, uh, Gary, that's not possible. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, it is. I've talked to the writers. I figured it out. Uh, we're going to say that I'm sick and that I have to call in to everybody to have all the conversations. So they're going to be on the phone. Trust me, it'll be fine. I said, Gary, please, can't you just wait one more day? He goes, no, I'm flying to Fiji. (laughs) (laughs) And he got on a plane and he flew to Fiji that night or the next morning and he was gone. So we shot the the rest of the episode without it. Uh, Very disappointing to me because that script was so funny. Everything in that episode was so funny. And it would have been better if Gary had been there. They did patch it together. Still, five great episodes you made. Thank you. Yeah, really, really funny. I've got one last question, Gil, from a from a listener, Max K, and I'm going to bring this full circle back to Hudson Hawk. Does Michael have any Joel Silver stories or incidents that he's willing to share? (laughs) 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 And if you don't want to tackle that one. Well, I, you know, what I will say, which is just funny, I mean, there are a million, there are a million stories about Joel, and we traveled around the world together to make this movie, so I, I can't pick out the yeah. best one, but what I will say is that Joel would constantly tell me, whenever I was making a choice that he didn't think was right, he'd say, we're not making a cappuccino movie here, you know, he's, I make popcorn movies, I make movies that people want to watch. I'm not going to make these cappuccino movies. And he kept calling me a, a, like an art <laughs> filmmaker, and it would drive me out of my mind. <laughs> well, there is, the, there is the running cappuccino gag in yeah, Hudson exactly. Hawk. Right. Exactly. That, that offended him. I guess so. I guess, yeah. you know. <laughs> Joel, I, Joel was pretty good to me on, on that movie because he, he liked what Dan and I were doing. But, you know, Joel's a complicated guy and he's a powerhouse. You can't, if to have a conversation with Joel at, at that time, at least, was to get in a yelling match. I didn't know how to work that way. Of course, of course. Uh, he'll always have my respect, though, for, for make, making the Hudsucker proxy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't think I've ever told this to anybody, but the, the Coen brothers called me before they made the Hudsucker proxy, sort of to get a sense of what it was like to work with Joel. Because, uh, you know, I, they, wanted, they wanted to know what they were getting into. And I had a nice conversation with him where I said, well, you know, he's, Joel kind of works this way and does this and does that. And these are the things that matter to him. And this is how he's going to treat you. And they both, they just said like, okay, that's not a problem for us. We, we're, he can't do that to us. He's going to, nope, 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 nope. Because Joel sometimes gets involved in things that, filmmakers you know that are yeah aggravating to filmmakers um and they they felt that they were they set up the movie in such a way that that wasn't going to happen and in fact Joel really left them alone to make the film um I do uh, we watched um Miller's Crossing 
in Rome, I think, in a screening room while we were making Hudson Hawk. Wow. And Bruce and Joel turned to me and said, wow, we ought to make it like that. And I laughed at them. I said, are you kidding me? You can, you're telling me I have to get tight close-ups of the lead actor in every scene? You, you guys don't understand what it is that the Coen brothers are doing when they make these films where they figure out what they want and they, they oh, execute it. Oh, they're storyboarding the within an inch of their lives. Yes. Yes. I said, we're not doing that here because you guys can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Get, get, uh, get Barry Sonnenfeld to shoot it in a lot of slow motion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hats tumbling through the woods. Did you, you know, are there more scary stories about, about Joel Silver or Scott Rudin? Because in Bar Barry Sonnenfeld's book, there's a great story about him building a fort out of cushions in, in Scott <laughs> Rudin's office to hide from him. <laughs> you know this story? Yeah, I, no. <laughs> he would throw tantrums, and so Sonnenfeld would hide. He would actually take the couch apart and make a, and make a fort. I, and I say, I'm not going to come out till you stop yelling. Joel Silver, around the release of Fort Fairlane, left a screaming message on my answering machine. And I was thinking, what, you know, what the fuck did I do? I, what, <laughs> and he was screaming at me on the oh. thing. And then I found out years later that he was famous for that. He would pick up the phone and scream into people's yes. machines. Yeah, I, I heard him threatening people on the phone. He would pick up the phone and he'd go, I'm going to fucking shoot your kneecaps off. I'm going, this is Hollywood. How can you do this? And he'd scream and yell and he'd, at the top of his lungs, my movies have made a billion dollars. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to fucking kneecap you. And then he'd slam the phone down and turn and say, okay, so where were we? You know, it was that kind of thing. Well, let's get him on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joel's still around, you know. He's uh, Joel yeah. is a very funny guy. We'll know? have him on. What did he do? Did he threaten you? Yeah, he he <laughs> uh, on the machine. Well, uh, on the machine, he said, "Tell me this isn't true. Tell me this isn't true." What I heard, and and according to him, he didn't hear it, and he heard it from someone else who I think also heard it from someone else saying that I was going around telling people to ban Fort Fairlane. <laughs> and, and I thought, when, when the fuck did I ever do that? I, I was uh, promoting it left and right. And, but forget it. He knew. And Hilarious. as a matter of fact, they had a little shit uh, Fort Fairlane jacket as like, you know, uh, uh, you know, the usual shit they give out on movies and TV. And and I was wearing it, and and Joel Silver saw me wearing it and said, "Who gave him that jacket?" Because he was still <laughs> pissed off at me, and this jacket that must have cost five dollars to make. All right, we're gonna call Joel Silver, and we're gonna have him on, and we're gonna have Scott Rudin too. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Michael, this was a kick. A, yeah. lot, a lot of fun, so much to cover, so much that we didn't get to, but we touched a little bit on everything. Uh, sometime come back and we'll just talk about movies. Yeah. I'd, I'd be happy to talk to you guys anytime about anything. You're very sweet. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even get to uh, Blazing Saddles and, and some of the other things that were on your oh, yeah. list. Uh, uh, I sent you the Blazing Saddles episode where we had Andrew Bergman and Norman Stutter. Yes. A lot, yeah. of good, a lot of good behind the scenes stuff and characters that didn't make it into the movie. Or just come back and we'll talk about Kubrick. Yeah, we could do that too. 
You've um, done everything. You've met everybody. I will tell our listeners to find me at the Apple Gates. It's fun. Uh, your episode, your seven episodes of Bored to Death. Uh, anything else you want to promote? You should write a book, by the way. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't, don't you have a memoir in you? Uh, I don't, you know, if, if I thought anybody was interested, I would do it. But um, no, I, you know, by the way, I, I like all sorts of stuff that I've done. So I'm happy. You know, if anybody ever sees anything that I was involved in, I'm a happy. Person. Well, you've, you've, and you've done some wonderful television. And that episode of The Comeback that you recommended to me, I loved. I loved, too. An underrated show. Yes, that show was really something else. I, I, I thought that uh, it was the first season of The Comeback that Lisa Kudrow, who... You know, I was never, I never watched Friends or anything like that. I, I went to work with her. She's brilliant. She's she really good. Great and she gets show. very dark when she wants to. Very, very funny. Will, will you will you audition Gilbert for, for Airheads 2? <laughs> <laughs> He's worked with Dan. I'm, there you go. I'm, I'm holding out for Hutch and Hawk 2. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then you'll get the part that I would give to Fiveish Finkel, because that's how old you'll have to be before they, before they make that one. <laughs> well, maybe, do, maybe we'll do one down the road with you and Dan. Oh, that would be good, because first of all, Dan is one of the funniest people you'll ever talk yeah, I, to. I invited him on here. He was busy at the yes, time. Yes, he's always too busy to yeah. do stuff. But the thing is, it's great with me and Dan, because I don't have to do any work at all. Dan just says all the funny stuff. I can be a straight man. It's perfectly we'll do that down the road we'll have some fun and just talk movies all right this was fun thank you so much so uh i'm gilbert godfrey this has been gilbert godfrey's amazing colossal podcast and we've been talking to the man responsible for hudson hall (laughs) (laughs) only one of them that's so not fair (laughs) michael layman Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. We'll give your love to Scott and Larry. Yeah, please. And we'll, we'll do this again down the road. Okay, good. Sounds good. Thanks. Bye-bye. Shh, you may grow up to be a mule. Or would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar. And be better Rather be a fish. A fish is an animal that swims in a brook. You can't write his name or read a book. To fool the people is his only thought. And though he's slippery, he still gets caught. If that sort of life is what you wish, you may grow up to be a fish. Or would you like to swim or stop? And be better off than you are Or would you rather be a pig? A pig is an animal with dirt on his face His shoes are a terrible disgrace He's got no manners when he eats his food He's fat and lazy and extremely rude But if you don't care a feather or a fig You may grow up to be a pig So you see, it's all I do you. You could 
Swinging on a star. You could be swinging on a star. Let's take it. 